finished last week discussing a very significant letter that the Rambam wrote to Abhijah the Gif. And of course, there are a lot of nuances to that issue. Sorry. We finished last week discussing the letter of Aharambam to Abhijah again. And of course, there are a lot of subtleties and nuances to that particular issue. A, in terms of what the Rambam thinks about Islam, number one. Of course, we have the issue that we want to talk about what does the Rambam think about Christianity, and that will get to. Also, I was going to pursue the notion of what the Rambam says in other areas about Dirut in general, namely to see whether the letter should be viewed as a personal private document or as a public document. Maybe we'll come back to that. But I want to go to another letter that <coughs> the Rambam writes, which touches on the same question as to how to understand the letters of the Rambam. As I mentioned at the very beginning, a letter is a very personal private document, and therefore you get truth, or perhaps the opposite. You know what the person really thinks? He's only writing to a person, a private person. So is he going to reveal his inner soul, or is he going to, since he's only writing to a person, going to be more, less guarded, but not as honest and open as, as if one were writing a public sock. When you write a public facade, it's not the same thing as writing a private answer to a halakha question. So, we have to revisit <coughs> the notion of Gerut next week. But I think this second issue ties into that, how to understand letters that any person writes privately. And you'll see how the very first paragraph over here sets some light on that. And then we'll come back to the Gerut issue and try to come to some kind of idea. What is his mode of letter writing? Is it whatever I really believe I really say, and therefore the fact that it's private does not mitigate against its truth? Or perhaps you'll see that <clears throat> the opposite, that when a person writes a letter, since it's only to you, it's one person, I could not necessarily tell you my deepest feelings and truth and things like that, what's right for you at this moment in time. There are multiple issues that I will tell somebody privately that I will not take publicly. Goes that saying. And even in terms of my true feelings, I don't have to necessarily express my truest feelings. You have a problem right now. You have an issue right now. I don't want to express my true feelings about it because that might be damaging to my relationship with you. It might be the wrong answer for you at this particular point in time. In many cases, a rabbi has to be somewhat cautious in what he says to a person that it should not be a public psychalacha. What's right for the public is not necessarily right for the individual and vice versa. Chabaruch often would say something privately in one category, it's very sensitive to the community needs, you will never say that same exact psychology publicly. So one has to be concerned. We're concerned about the truth of the Ram's positions. What does he really feel? Does the letter writing over here shed light on what he really feels on one hand? Or is it only a private communication and therefore it doesn't, shouldn't be taken seriously? That's the question that we're sort of trying to analyze. Now, <clears throat> as we well know, when you read the Rambam, as we've made the point before, there are two or possibly even three Rambams. Meaning, there's a Rambam of Mishneh Torah, the Halachic Rambam, traditional Rambam, that everybody knows and loves. There's a Rambam of Mishneh the philosopher. There's the third Rambam, perhaps, of both Rambams are actually the same person. Meaning, there's a complete and total integration complete integration of one Rambam into the other. Throughout the last thousand years, many have been on one side of the Rambam, many have been on the other side of the Rambam, and in the last 50 years, I'd say, the newest school, Rabbi Tversky at Harvard, his work is saying, it's one Rambam. 
Obviously, the same Ramah that put out Tefillin every single morning is a Ramah who wrote Mordein Not all people would have agreed with that statement 100, 200, 300 years ago. The far right has adopted the Rambam, the far left has adopted the Rambam, and those academicians also have seen two different Rambams. But, but by choice, it's absurd. And I think intuitively, I've always felt that, yes, the Rambam makes certain statements in Mordein Nebuchim that doesn't sort of correspond to Moshe Torah Rambam. That's true. But still, it's one person, it's one, one great mind that's dealing with different audiences and has the subtlety of mind to express to one audience the same truths in the Wadabuchim to the Mishnah but say it in a different fashion. Same wine, different flasks. So he got his message across. And sometimes it was very subtle, sometimes it wasn't so subtle. Okay. But that's issue is going to come up in this particular letter that the Ramam is going to be writing right now. Trying to find out the Rambam of Mishnah Torah which uses a different set of tools than the Rambam in Morin Nebuchim. Mishnah Torah, the Rambam is a halachist. And therefore he accepts as basic to this endeavor let's say for example Torah and Chazal and Gemara, Mishnah and Gemara, and what other rabbis have said, and he's Prosecco She'ela. He's given a certain set of raw matter that he has to fashion into a Tzach The Rambam of Rene Bukhiv is a very different Rambam, in a certain sense. That Rambam is now a philosopher, a theologian, a scientist. And therefore, he operates with what he calls in Arabic, Burhan. Burhan in Arabic means an absolute definitive proof. It's a proof. If you prove something, acceptable. If you didn't prove it, I don't have to accept it. There's an internal system that has to be consistent internally. But I'm not going to judge the halakh system by the criteria of Aristotelian logic. If I'm not mistaken, there might be, outside of Sefer Madah, the book of knowledge of the Rambam, Aristotle, of course, and Plato are not mentioned once. Period. I'm not sure he's mentioned in the first book either. I'm assuming maybe once or twice he does mention Aristotle in the first book, Sivra Mada. But after that, it doesn't connect. There's no applicability of the Soterian categories of thinking to the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam, with the exception of the first book. In Murena Bukhim, every other page, or every third or fourth page, is Aristotle or Plato. It's different. You approach these two disciplines with completely different categories of thought. That point rings true to me as obvious. Is it obvious to everybody here that one should be doing that? Or not obvious? I'd like you to argue the opposite with the world out there argues. What do they say about this issue? The world out there says no. Chazal spoke theology as well. And science as well. So therefore, the, so, so the right wing will say that the same way you accept Chazal as a prosaic halacha, you have to accept Chazal as a prosaic science and theology. What do they say? Accept it. The Rambam would say that. The Rambam would not say that. I study halakha accepting their premises and their conclusions with no external logical presuppositions. I accept it. On the one hand. On the other hand, in Muhammad Bukhim, we're operating with different tools. This is science. This is objective reality. What is out there? Now, either subconsciously or consciously, 
it's obvious that when I will study something, I will bring different sets of tools. When I'm studying in a university, my academic tools has nothing to do with what I do in shul. And when I do in shul, that's what I do academically. Yes, there are times when I will academize my shul classes and it will be more of an academic exercise than a, than a rabbinical exercise. So there is a fine line. But often it's not the case. What I do in class X, maybe I'm doing class Y. Depends on the audience, who's coming, who's not coming. And the idea would be to serve the needs of everybody. So I'm going to automatically do that. My critical faculties are suspended in certain classes because it's not relevant to that class. Yep, please call out. I'm sorry? Sometimes they do. Not necessarily always. <clears throat> I believe at a certain point, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because I'm not, I can give you a zillion examples of this. One would be the following. Let's say I read in Shuhana Aruch or Hamavad Yosef of Tikkun Halakha. Am I going to critically analyze that based on the canons of, lo of external Western logic? It was no. He has his own system. I'm part of that system because I'm a halakhic Jew. So if I'm going to, going to follow it. Or if I ignore it, it will not be a public ignorance, ignorance, of, it. ignorance of it. Meaning, there's an interesting example. My Maharonim. My Maharonim, Hobabri, quotes that halakha. Right? And what's interesting over here <clears throat> is that Mayim Harim was originally Talmudically, according to one shita, was right because people ate heavily salted food as a preservative. You touched your eyes, you burnt your eyes, so therefore you have to wash your hands after you finish eating from that physical reality. Today we don't use heavily salted foods. We don't we use the things we use our knives and forks during those days. So why do Mayim Harim? Right? But it's part of the halakhic system. Not, nobody uses it in those terms. There's not an opinion about it from the idea of washing before washing. Afterwards, it's a yam of kiddushah. It's a different opinion about it. It's about the first opinion. Similarly, so I'm not, I, I may not do it, but I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm not going to apply my Western canonized modes of thought to that particular halakha. And there are many, many examples that one would or would not do but it's not because you made, but it's part of a system. You're into that system. Mamzerut. I may have ethical problems with Mamzerut. Kid didn't do anything wrong. His parents fooled around. Just a relationship. Get a Mamzer. Can't marry a Jewish person. Okay, so what do I do with that? Nothing. I'm part of a 3,000 year old system that I have to obey. <clears throat> I can't sanction that marriage. Whoever the kid may be. David Siddiq wants to marry. Comes to the shore to marry. You're wonderful. You're I can't marry you. Can't marry you. Why not? Because it's part of my. System. I'm part of the system. Whatever I personally think about it is one story. But whatever my therapist is about another story. It's here. So it's from a certain community. I can't apply to it. The at this when I'm within the synagogue, I try to think about it. It's a different set of tools I may analyze it with. Sociological tools, psychological tools, whatever it may be. Historical tools. But when I'm in the synagogue, it's one story. But I'm at a synagogue, it's a different story. So, in the same way that one just one approaches one's professional responsibilities with different tools depending upon what you do. When you're rabbiing and somebody comes in for counseling, 
are you applying rabbinical tools or social work skills? Social work might be say to a person who's cheating on his wife that I understand where you're coming from, it's not a great idea, but and you and, and you don't neutralize, you don't impose, you deal with a different reality than if you're a rabbi. So the question is, are they coming to a rabbi or to a social worker? The answer is both sometimes. You be very careful of that. Special responsibilities. A social worker, for example, would never tell the spouse somebody's cheating because that's not part of the, the deal. A rabbi might always tell. Let's say a... Why, why did we just laugh? Might always. <laughs> you're right. But it, I, that was intent, you're right, but I was intentionally so. Because I... Yeah, <laughs> it's a, you're right, but I still stand by those words. You're right, but it's interesting. Sometimes uh, the other issue would be um, uh, other um, cases. Uh, if somebody's doing something that's illicit but not harmful to that person, drugs, the social worker would not, social work skills do not diminish his privacy of the confidential relationship. A rabbi is not necessarily bound by that, depending upon, you know, it obviously the broader picture. The kid's soul, as opposed to what the kid's doing now. So, it's the different schools. So, do they have to mesh? Was your question? I don't know that they do. One has to think through that issue. The answer really is, yes, at a certain point, that the academician in me is, on a personal level, going to justify and legitimize what I do. At some point down the road, or at some recesses of a person's mind, heart, and soul. But they don't necessarily have to. One can live compartmentalized in different worlds. Robert Trotsky is a great example. He's a Hasidic Rebbe on Shabbat in his shul, and he's a PhD in, in Harvard, writing with the Rambam academically during the week at Harvard. Yeah, yeah. And yet, and yet he, right, so he, but he does it in both worlds. And we'll say Hasidically and Rabbinically is not what we would say in the university. And yet, despite keeping both sides of the personality separate, there is, I think, at a certain point, a kind of integration. One doesn't contradict the other. They both coexist seamlessly, harmoniously. And, and that might be an issue that, let's say, in this community or in other communities, where if a rabbi can't do that, then he ends up rabbinizing Everything. In which case, his academic judgments become clouded by his rabbinical opinions about something. It's astounding when you could tell something, somebody something about them. Let's say, it's true that. We've proven that there's the, the earth is more than 5,000 years old, whatever the case may be. But since he's rabbinically thinking, he cannot deal with that scientific fact. It's a fact. What do you want? It's a fact. <laughs> he can't accept it as a fact. Because he only thinks rabbinically. Rabbis say this, but the rabbis are wrong when they said this. Can't be rabbis are wrong. He only has one set of skills, so he only, his rabbinical skills are imposed upon everything he does. So if somebody comes in, let's say, and the wife says to the rabbi, I'm not going to mikveh any longer. I'm not saying my husband, I'm not going to mikveh. I'll tell him, I'll fool my husband, I'm not doing it. I'm not happy with this, I don't want to go to mikveh, whatever the case may be, right? So, <clears throat> now that may need social work resolution, right? As opposed to rabbinical. If you're a rabbi, you want to that husband, he's not going to be, just do this, it's, this would be lighter. If you're a social worker, that's really that, but you reduce it on a more psychological, family, harmony, tension situation. So if the rabbi rabbinizes everything, 
he may blow a few calls. As opposed to, sometimes you have to choose what skills you're going to work with at that particular point in time. Sometimes it's rubric and social work. Sometimes it's academic. I could deal academically with any issue. And that rabbinically, it's a different issue. And something is, and yet there is a higher unity where I'm comfortable in both worlds because there is that connecting link. Is that solved? Right. It shows how difficult the job really is. Also. Well, I'm not worried about that right now. That's not my issue. <laughs> but you do have to operate on those levels because otherwise you're not being fair to your kahal. I shouldn't answer a question of science and religion rabbinically because it may be uh, it's a, it's a scientific question. Then analyze it scientifically. What does this really say? What does it mean? What's implications? Good. And now we'll see what it means rabbinically and then see how that all works out together. As opposed to simply saying the rabbis have said operating only with one set of principles or tools of how to analyze a question. So the Rambam operated on one of the Rambam. The objective analysis that's required of scientific theological issues is not appropriate for a Mishnah Torah issue. Which was just saying. Concrete example. The Rambam reinterprets biblical statements of anthropomorphisms. An average rabbi in the 12th century would not necessarily do that. Torah says God has a flowing nostril and a yad. So it says, that's what it is, that's, that's the story. Why should I go beyond that? So the Rambam says, one second, that's what I says, scientifically it's impossible, philosophically it's impossible, God does not have flowing nostrils. God cannot have any kind of physical dimensions or demeanor or characteristics. Period. So, there the objective scientific Rambam is challenging the shot of the Torah, which says that God has all these physical attributes. So now, whereas the Rambam may make a very small, quiet issue of it in Mishnah Torah, if at all, Rambam Mulan Abuchim is going to make a much larger issue about it. It's going to spend 70 chapters in the first part of Mulan explaining away all of those statements. Because philosophically, it's impossible to hold. Now, if a person comes to the Rambam, a simple Jew, and says, Look, Rambam, does God get angry? What's Rambam going to say to that? As a rabbi, it's good the person believes that God gets angry if you violate the law. As a philosopher, he knows God does not get angry. God has no emotions either. God's beyond emotions as he's beyond physical attributes. Or he's around the zoo of that. Right? So what's Rambam going to tell that person? He knows it's socially pragmatic for people to believe that God gets angry if you violate law. That's going to keep you in line. So now, the Ram and the rabbis are going to say, yeah, God gets angry at you. If you violate the law, if you beat your wife, if you rape this person, if you steal, God will be angry with you. You'll pay a price for that. Ram and the philosopher says, God doesn't get angry. He has no emotions. It's even, right. it's even much better. Right. Much, much stronger. Practical example. Let's say a person comes to me and says, I want Mrs. Roth. Oh, very nice, says Mrs. Roth. I want them now. I don't have to order them. No, I want them now. Why do you want them now? What? You, have, you know, you can't wait a couple of days. No, I want them now. Why? Because my house is unprotected. We're well, not protected. My house is not protected. I don't need ADT. Right? Because they're protected. So, but if I don't have Mrs. Roth, then I have to go around my house. Now, the rabbi says, look, <clears throat> what is what his motivations are? Everybody Mrs. Roth, it's fine. Good. But this is putting on Mrs. Roth. The rabbi Kadamish says the Zohar is not for the purpose of protecting your house. There are many, many houses that have Zohar that have fires in them, people got sick in them. The Zohar do not protect the house. That's the question. That's down the road. That's down the road. 
Guy walks in off the street, what should I tell him? Women and Hatan Yarim. <coughs> Not necessarily. No, because the, the question is whether his window of learning is open at that moment. Because educate a person's window is open. Not, our children, as they grow, their windows open and close. If you catch a kid, whenever his window is open, the kid takes it all in. But your kid's watching uh, Pokemon, and you want to tell them about uh, nuclear physics or something, he's not listening to you. However, if his window is open, and he asks the right questions, he's absorbing the material, that's what it's open. That's what education always works. Depends when a person is ready emotionally, intellectually to accept and receive that message. So women are not there in. We have five women coming to that in. Is that the end of people that Mahalur Shabbat, don't go to Mikveh, they're eating dicks and all that stuff, they are going to have that Medellin. It's absurd. <laughs> okay. Now, do I, should I say, women really become once it's fine, coming to Kippur, so you can you come three times. So do I tell them the truth that this is absurd? Or do I say, look, they come to Shul, thank God, look, why should I bother them? They made this into their religion. So should I tell them that? Or should I just, don't say it, let the person put up his business work, let women come to shul in a folk way. So the rabbi in you says, don't tell them, let them do what they're doing because it's fine. The academician, so to speak, or the uh, rationalist in you, so to speak, says, let's tell them the truth. Same thing, the same type of a uh, issue. How do you solve that problem of educating and yet not turning off, not turning away, that person, that Mizrach says, Oh, you're going to the house? What do I need them for? It's a sign of Jews. It's a very important. That's Shema. Very important philosophical principle. You, you philosophy, Kish. So I lost the person. Do I want... I'm sorry? I'm assuming that. That's my case. It's my given. In my case, the given. What I'm, talking, what I'm thinking about right now, I'm front of you right now. Next question says to me, I'm superstitious. I therefore want to say Tehillim because only will protect me. Something to that effect. So you shouldn't be saying Tehillim because it's superstitious. Say because it's a... You know, it's a prayer, it's Shabbat Hashem, whatever you want to say. You know, I am superstitious. If I don't say every day something better happens to my family. It's almost paganism, that notion. So, how to evaluate all of that, the Rambam will tread very gently. Because he takes Jack's point very seriously. Namely, I want to educate. I don't want people superstitiousizing my religion. So, be very careful about this. On the other hand, the same levels have always chosen. Don't educate because you don't want people not coming to shul at the Nazarim. Let's say come. At least they come. Good. They will come more. He's right. They come to the Nazarim. Maybe they will come to next Shabbat. Invite them. Educate them to come more and more and more. Listen in the door. We, we break our necks to get them to the door. Okay. Okay, that's their failing. You're right, but that's that's rabbinic failing. I'm right. Okay, agreed. But it works. They say come to shul. In other words, it didn't happen that women said, "What am I doing over here? I have to come to this thing over here." So why should I come? No, at the end of the day, they do. It's astounding. You go to tashlich. There's a dozen things like this. Go to tashlich. Is the essence of tashlich? I'm throwing. There's a two hundred women out there throwing away their sins. That whole story. It's supposed to be a psychological, spiritual act of repentance, of redemption, and everything else. No. They should come. I feel really like they said. They believe physically, but they literally have to run away their sins. It's nonsensical. Yet that has become Syrian folk religion. As opposed to something that's much more spiritual, much more profound. Okay, so the Rambam presents 
these two Rambams, which really, I think, the third, that there is a higher seamlessness to it. That's what Rebbe does in the university, Kashyushri does in a shul, and vice versa. Or those two different persona. So you ask him about a minhad yashan. I want to ask him about a question about a, a, a writer with a superstition. So, Rebbe the professor at Harvard, will answer one thing. Historically, sociologically, why this issue arose. Rebbe the rabbi may not answer that way. But if I said to him, look, I'm not going to leave Judaism, I wouldn't really, I mean, what should I do about this issue? Then he'll say, you have to do it, you know, super issue, you may answer that way. But he won't be so easy to answer that if I'm in a shoe and he's in a room of God, he doesn't know who I am, because then he's the rabbi. So it's not an easy answer, but the realm certainly presents these two different personas. Not all rabbinical sources do this, obviously not. Now she did not present two different personas. Do we all agree with that? Now she, at all. Sa'aja Gaon represented only one persona, the philosopher, who was an integrated halakhic Jew. Now she was the non-philosopher, the Pashtun, who was an integrated Jew. The Rambam was so unique in this, although not exclusively unique, but unique in this, that he had the Rambam Mishnah Torah, Rambam Mishnah Nebuchim, and the Rambam. All three, as people have argued for the last thousand years, as to will the real Rambam please stand up. This letter over here does, in fact, clarify who the real Ramam is. It's fairly obvious that we know who the real Ramam is. And this letter may, in fact, shade your opinion to one side rather than the other. It may shade. You may walk with this letter and end up saying, really, the real Rambam is not the Mr. Torah, but rather the philosopher Rambam. Or the opposite. Let's read the letter. But again, all the caveats that we mentioned before about the information that we extrapolate from a letter has to be taken into account. A letter is only a letter. A private correspondence. And then we want to, once you have this, then we could then go ahead and see in other places as well, is that correspondence or not? What is the Rambam doing in his letters are such a question that we want to eventually answer. Okay? Now, unfortunately, the only edition of this that I found when I quickly looked was this Rashi edition of this letter. I don't know how our Rashi reading is. We'll grow it, of course, but I will try to find a better edition of this. I'll try. I didn't get a chance to look at all my books, but we'll see how this one. And if you don't know that, actually, then it's a good time to learn. Do you have a copy, Jack? Do you want to check it? I have one extra for you. I mean, you are obviously a loyal student of the Rambam. Okay. Now, this is a letter that the Rambam wrote to Hastai Halevi Hasfaradi. Who is this person? Simply a person living in Spain. Who's a rationalist? I'm sorry, wrote to Alexandria. Alexandria. But he came originally from Spain. So he's known as Sparadi. And why he wrote from, from Egypt to Alexandria. Right? Now, the interesting issue over here is that Tiva Echad Mutamidav Shigitov Shivot Shiratov Shalom Lo Ashimo. Now, one of his students to write this letter to Hasdai. Right, so now we, we're getting the Rambam's words through the pen of a student. It complicates our task of understanding this. Okay? Let's look at the opening one. Amara Talmud, the student said, I swear that the teacher of the Master Rambam made me swear 
Adam But I will not set up any person with the writings of the Rambam. And I would not copy over and give to the person what the Rambam said. So this is the Rambam telling you, be careful to whom you give my words. Don't give it to anybody. This is to be focused only to this person. That's why how they read. Because the Rambam was busy, so he had a student, he says, okay, I want you to dictate a letter. I'm dictating a letter. We don't know who he is. <coughs> It was irrelevant. Well, it could be. <clears throat> it might be that the Rambam wants this to go as the Rambam's word. So the student is irrelevant at this point because we don't care. The student is only writing the letter. But the real question is, was it dictation or was it was the student, and we'll come back to this point before we finish this. We want to get a sense of the contents. Is the student summarizing the Rambam or is he word for word hearing a dictation that is what the Rambam's intent is. That's a very critical issue. Are these Rambam's words or just a general summary? Come back to that point. Okay? But the student is saying to me that the teacher, the master, the master, made me swear, Shuar Hanura, Shbiyani Muri Harad, Shuyahiyah, that he should live, Shuar Adam al Kitab Yador, I will not give anybody his Kitab Yador, his handwriting, the Lord Harim the Mosra, and I am going to give it over to somebody else. He doesn't want you to give this to somebody else either. Right? So it's you. All I have to quote to copy it to any person. I agree. This letter is written only to you. Hasai Halavi. So it also tells me that Hasai cannot give it to anybody else either. Right? The Rambam is very concerned. And it just says, sorry? Say what? Yeah, it's not my fault. It's Hasai's fault. Whoever published it. Right. Now, with this thing like this, it's the same with the tapes. We have all these tapes that we're making now, right? Every class, we have, we have now, Bobby's made, we made for Bobby maybe 70 or 80 tapes. But he knows he cannot give these out. Because what I say in, in a particular class is for people in that class, not necessarily for everybody out there. It's very interesting, I find it, that, say, Raymond Bird or others just want to give out the tapes, and they say, they're for everybody. I don't feel that way. What I'm teaching to one class, and I say, for everybody. I want everybody to know everything I say in every single class that I give. I think it's an interesting comment on what we teach. What he says is fine for everybody, as far as I know. Maybe he doesn't record some class that he gives that doesn't go to everybody. I don't know. But as far as I know, he gives a tape. It's fantastic. Well, people love it, and he gives it out, and it's great. But Bobby has to go over this with a fine-tooth comb and see whether or not he feels it's appropriate for an average Baha Bite. Whether it's this class or last night's class, the science and religion class, Whatever it may be. And interestingly, there are many classes that might be for everybody, but if they're, if they're so pardon or so uh, normative for Shabbat Ashi, what do you need for? So one can raise that question. So the interesting point over here is that at the same point. You write a letter to somebody, should it be for everybody? The answer is, of course not. That letter to that person. Even afterwards, I think, you'll see, I met. And he additionally made me swear al-kacha, rashbiyari al-kacha. With the caution he had to hitiv, and with difficulty I pushed him away, shvir etim no akitav, shikatav b'kitav yadur. That I, I pushed that I will not give out the writing that he wrote with his hand to answer your question. Because the Ram did not want 
in this introductory paragraph, he'll be seeing that he wrote this answer, even his handwriting. Because then the other one wrote it. Because you always want to be able to deny that you didn't write or say this. So one point time I have to say that the tape is not, my, not mine. Bobby made it up to blackmail me. That could be. I mean, if somebody gets it, it could be, some things could be very damaging. So it's not. So he says that because she did have deny, with difficulty I tried to push him. She let him law hakatab, she katab that I will not give him, the stupid, I will not, don't, I will not give him that that you wrote with your hand. Let me an answer. I won't give it out, I won't give it out. To answer your question, and, and until she atikinu tabladi, to I copy it with my handwriting. This is a Sherlock Holmes story over here. What's going on? Yeah. Come anyway. I love you very strongly. It's impossible for me to not answer you, to return your face empty-handed, to not answer your question. You're a very wise person. That you're appropriate to stand by to understand the secrets of Torah and the inner recesses of wisdom. Right? So now we're talking about what Tarnam's favorite subject is, the hidden secrets of Torah that is not willing to communicate publicly. One of the issues we've discussed and covered is the notion is how do you write about the secrets of Torah publicly when it should not be public? The answer is, we're in the Bukhin. If you write it so sadly, in a way, that somebody who reads it will not know that you took the secrets of Torah. Oh, it's only this, this, that you read it, put it down and finish. And only the very careful reader is able to <clears throat> read between the lines and be able to understand that there's something hidden going on over here. There's an undercurrent. And you have to know how to do that. And the Ram's premise over here is that only a very careful reader will get the subtle message of Marina Wachim. Meaning, you take any right-wing person, let's use it, that as a term, and he will read Marina Wachim and say, there's nothing objectionable about this book. Straight. On the other hand, you take another person who knows how to read the book, he will read it and say, Wow! How do you say this to Rambam? I can't believe it. Amazing. A classic work that was written that tells you about this issue, as mentioned, Persecution on the Art of Writing. How does one who is going to be persecuted write? He has to write a private, public book. That's what it is. It's really going to be private. Only persons that know what I'm talking about are going to read it. And it's, it's out there in the marketplace. How do you do that? Is the key issue. It's often it's a rabbi's challenge to communicate a message that he knows that people are not going to want to hear. It's a necessary message to be told. So how do you do that? If you just say it outwardly, you lose half your kahal. You say it more subtly. People that want to hear it, hear it. People that can't deal with it, don't deal with it. And you've succeeded in doing that. Right? That's what he wants to do now. So you, the rabbi, Rabbi Hastai, you're wonderfully appropriate for this issue. I want to answer your questions. You're deserving and able to stand up by the Sitiyah Torah and the Hadrah Chokmah. I can tell you the words of Mori Harav Kishino, that he says. Yishar, oh, sorry. Say exactly what he says, Yishar. Now is that, what's my question now, is that an artifice? Or is that real? What's he saying over here? 
It's impossible to obey them. It's impossible to obey them. But is that really true? Is he really summarizing, it's my words, and I'm protected by teacher? Or is he really going to tell you exactly what the Bible says? See, this is incredibly important. He could either be saying, say, look, I can't tell you exactly what he says, but I'll give you my words about it. Now, that could either be true, or could be only an artifice in order to protect the rainbow. can't well, see, that's a good point, because, first of all, can you give over the essence? Maybe we can. The essence. But you also, part of every giving over is an interpretation. So now, do you want to, he's almost saying and not saying what he's doing over here. That's the, that is the Rambam's general subtle method. He will reveal as he conceals, and conceal as he reveals. The Rambam. So, does the student do the same? Or the student's just innocently saying, look, I, don't, I, I, I can't read exactly his words, but that's generally what he says. It's amazing. I'm reading um, now an article, a friend of mine, Rabbi Beck, from Gush Etzion, on, now this is from Ira Kaplan, another friend of mine from Montreal, from McGill, and he's talking about revisionism in Rav Soloveitchik. It's exactly parallel. Soloveitchik was the halachist, the philosopher, and he who achieved a greater unity, a seamless unity. I know of the unity. Personally, professionally, this unified personality that loved the philosophical world, loved the halakhic world, was equally committed to both with an intense integrity and power. But now, as soon as he passed away, 93, everybody claims him, denying each the other. Intellectual says, Man Orthodox Rabbi Salvechik. The Rabbi says, No, he's Yeshiva Rev. It's astounding. Both are true. Both are equally true. He was both to both worlds. Of course, I think of Cook was changed, but how do we, I don't know the real love Cook. So I, I'd be much more hesitant to saying that. Personally. Personally, right. Rabbi it's almost laughable how it happened. He was taken away from his moors. He, I think it's all clear. Many of the Rosh would have wanted to say, no, he didn't really care about philosophy. It was silly. He just, the game he played. The game he played. And he didn't know the man. Cause, uh, the, uh, the integrity of the message, he didn't play games, intellectual games like that. It was a serious pursuit of his. Oh, so he was the halachist? No, of course it was about Talmud. Of course, seriously, with the same integrity. He was able to compartmentalize. When he did philosophy, when he did halacha, did halacha. He didn't quote Tugard and Kant and Hegel in his Shodiyat Talmud. And yet we did philosophy. The philosophy seriously. The PhD in philosophy. You don't pretend you're in your life in philosophy and just think it's a, it's a game. And now this Dr. Ka- Dr. Kaplan, who is saying, look how the immediately after he passed away, the revisionism began. And you, you've seen it. Norman Lamb, in his spirit, says, don't let it happen. He quotes, Norman Lamb in his spirit. In the 1930s, he says, don't let it happen. He's telling the YU world. But it's all, it has happened. The reason is, who really is over salvation? Same exact issue. And can I give over exactly these teachings? You know, even if I give over verbatim, I may shade in the direction by choosing what to, to give over. And did I recreate him my own image? I believe not, of course. Well, I, mean, how could, I would never do that. It's terrible. 
But they would subconsciously do that. Did you say what I wanted to say? Did you say what he really says? And how do we interpret what he says? So all of this, of course, is part of the same exact issue. So, who, what's he telling us over here? says, and yeah, um, Lomalachai to tell you the words of Mori, Harat, Kishora, Irsha. I'll change the language. Aniyah, I will leave Kanyan, the content. Kemoshu, as it is. Ashagia, Nechad, Odikadat, Ameshif. So we get to you more. The, uh, that knowledge of the people who the teacher. So really, what happens to me? Yair, and Yenob, Bemor, to Atur, Amen. God should enlighten us. Here's the answer. Here's the essence of the, of the answer to your question. What did you ask about? You asked about Hatamut and Hidush. What does that mean? Hatamut and Hidush. Eternity of the universe versus its creation. Right? This is one of the main philosophical issues that engage the mind. Of all medieval people. Is the world universe eternal or is it created? If it's eternal and the laws of nature are eternal, that precludes what basic biblical category? Well, Bereshit for sure, but more than Bereshit. Miracles. The world is always eternal and always been functioning. But I'm support the Morning Bukhi Part 2, Chapter 25, 24, where he makes the same point. That miracles cannot be part of a change in a break of nature if nature is eternal. It always is that way. And how does prayer work? If the, na- if the rules of nature are immutable, unchanging, unbreakable, then you can't operate outside. If they're eternal. But, and if they're eternal, they're co-eternal with God. Co-eternal with God. So now, what's the relationship? Are they, could God manipulate them? But they're eternal. So we get into a whole thicket of questions when we think about what does creation imply and what does eternity of the universe imply. Well, that's how they perceived it. Let's go on and we'll see how this plays out. Hereir Dea, Shachnev know that the philosophers, Lo'iv Siku Devrehem, did not stop their words, Le'amid Davar Era Be'aya Be'ra. Take note. Philosophers would never stop their words other than to set up something <coughs> with Le'aya Be'ra, meaning clear-cut proof, absolute proof, which we cannot deny. One of the most enduring qualities of studying Maimonides, Rambam, is this notion of how powerful scientific or philosophical proof is. Rambam is setting up a model. If it's proven scientifically or theologically, philosophically, then it's proven. You can't deny it. Don't try to deny it. For me, it's been, on one end, you might say a Pandora's box, because it raises all kinds of questions. But on the other hand, it's the beacon of light that you want to learn with. No issue should scare you or find you as the criticism or revolution or whatever the case may be. Why? Because if it's proven as an absolute principle, then it's proven. And then what do I have to do? Reinterpret. Yes, that's the Achilles heels of the Maimonidean approach. But you're going to end up reinterpreting Bereshit and everything else. So then you say, well, what's the value of Bereshit if I have to reinterpret it all the time? Nevertheless, that's what the Ramam is saying. If creation is proven as a scientific principle, and I cannot deny it that the real interpret Bereshit in the same way the Ramam says as we all know, 
that I reinterpret all of the anthropomorphic expressions in all of the Torah, because I've proven philosophically that God has no emotions and God has no physical character, bodily characteristics. So what do you do? You must reinterpret. So then you're going to say, but the Torah is going to that malleable, silly party, and the Constitution reinterpret based on new knowledge? Brahma would say, yes. Torah is fixed. Your job is to, it's fixed. It's what it is. But your job now is to interpret it according to the canons of truth. And how do I write the truth? Through the Alep of what? End story. Simple. You cannot answer an absolute proof. Whatever the category may be. If three angles are 180 degrees in a triangle, that's what it is. Whatever the case may be. You've got to follow it. You can't answer it. And the early rabbinical groups, I'm sorry, the early groups, there were groups before, before Plato, there were groups of philosophers before Plato, who denied God. In other words, yes, the pre-Socratic philosophers, Socratic before Plato, they denied God. They were what? And they brought proofs. Sha'alam Yashan, the world's eternal. Right? We have Heraclitus, Parmenides, many pre-Socratic philosophers who spoke of the eternal of, eternal of the universe and denied God. The En Megalgil Manhik, the Galgal Manhik, and the Galgal, the sphere of the earth has no Manhig. No Manhig. No. No leader. Nobody who's doing, nobody watching over it. No ruler. Yes. If you look at um, the Epicureans, I believe the Epicureans, who said there's no such thing as divine providence. Lucretia. Keep that in mind. Take note of that. Lucretius, I believe, was says that the Earth is the result of a, a random collision of atoms. There's a book on the Earth. Random collision of atoms is no manhig. Epicurean, in fact, when you talk about the word Epicurus, it comes from the word Epicurean, not believing in divine providence. Doesn't mean he's an atheist. It means just believe in divine providence. Gods don't care what you do. Do whatever you want. So, I say, the thing is more profound than that. Because that's saying that God cares and is involved, but hides the face, but still is manhig. They say there's no manhig. There's nobody ruling. Yes, you're absolutely right. Now, the early, these are the earlier pre-Socratic philosophers, the Kitot Ha-Haronim, and the later day groups, philosophers, agreed, Hordu, they agreed with a God, Shaolan Hadash, and the world was created, Kedat, as the opinion of Moshe Rabbeinu Moshe Aharim and other later day groups they agreed to the God so they're in the third group these are philosophers and they're talking about a little bit of words so hold on a second what are we talking about over here they said that the world is eternal Yishan is eternal yet there is a God co-eternal with the world good and there's no, and God Himself 
has no intent in creation because the world's eternal. No involvement of creation. God is the cause and the world is the effect of God. Cause and effect. But God's eternal, therefore, the world's eternal. There's an interesting point over here. Why were Jewish philosophers attracted to the notion of the eternity of the universe? To the extent that Rabbi, for example, Gersani, he's one of the great fists of medieval minds in general, as a mathematician and as an astronomer, but also a great philosopher. Why do you believe in eternal, eternal matter? Eternal matter. Rabbi quotes the notion of eternal matter in Mirena Bukhim as well. Total being eternal matter. And of course, Rabbi quotes the Midrash I mentioned last night, the Midrash that philosophically used the snow of Ma'aser Bereshit to, to create the world, the snow of Kishat Kavod to create in Ma'aser Bereshit the world. What snow? Eternal matter. So I don't agree with that, but he quotes it. Once he quotes it, he doesn't agree with it, it's an interesting question. He quotes the Chazal, which agrees with Plato's opinion. That God created the world out of snow, which he explains is eternal matter. So here you see that there are rabbis who agree with eternity of matter and that they agree with Plato's view. Yeah, God says, I don't believe in that. Why are you telling me you don't believe in it? One of the interesting questions, Zoram simply quote opinions that he wants you to know that, but says, I don't believe in it. Interesting issue. Is he covering up? Okay. But not worry about that right now. But <coughs> why were rabbis attracted to this notion of eternity of matter? Because you then don't do the problem. <coughs> How does God choose a time in which to create the universe? And is there not a change in God from the pre-created, pre-creation God to the post-creation God? God creates. God does something. Pre-God doing that, God is X. Post-God doing that, is God still X? No, God did something. Do you see what I'm saying? Wait, I don't... I'm not about the hard question. Do we know what are talking about? God... The, the standard of evil position on my God is unchanging, perfect. State of becoming, uh, state of being, supposed to be coming. God is, capital I-S. So he never changes, immutable, never changes. If he does something, he's changed. He's changed. Why did that? Because he did something. I mean, he didn't do it before. He didn't do it before. So Why does that affect him? Why does that affect him? It, first of all. If he was perfect, then he wouldn't need to... Why is he... It's not a question of perfect. He's immutable because he's perfect. His perfect is unchanging. But a God who acts in, at a certain point, the fact that he did something is different. However, in whatever way you want to see that difference, it's not something he did something. He did something. He thought a thought. Was that there before or not there before? Was the act there before or not there before? When you have a thought, you're not the same person you have before you have a thought. What? <laughs> That's his fault, not mine. Fundamental thought is he wants to do a chesed. So God wants to do a chesed. What's the mistakenism? So God wants to do a chesed. So of course it's a standalone expanding creation. But God, before, before he created, not want to do a chesed? God's eternal. So, so at one point in time, right. So one issue is, that all of a sudden God says, I start prior to doing the chesed, do I want to do a chesed? Oh, so God all of a sudden had an idea. I'm going to do a chesed right now. So what happened before? What happened yesterday? What happened before that? So, wait, wait. So that's what? Well, nobody says that. But wait, so that's one issue. So that's one issue. 
no issue. But the second issue is again that they viewed that God acting is different than God prior to his acting. How can he act? It means it's somebody else. He did something different. You are changed. Was there a change in God from A to B? It had to be. Because A was not creation, then it was creation. He acted, the question. He acted. Something happened. It's different. Essentially, <clears throat> it wasn't changed, but it's a different. It's the same God, He did something. So then, therefore, there's a change in God. Not a change in His uh, being, per se, necessarily, but still, <clears throat> maybe it is. So the thought arose, things happened. So, Therefore, the, it's, we're comfortable to say that God's eternal, and then the universe <coughs> is eternal as well, or at least matter is eternal as well, and there's not a, <coughs> a before and an after over here, because it's all eternal. Exactly. And that is, God is the, not eternal, is co-eternal, but God is qualitative. Not temporally, because they're both co-eternal, but logically, or metaphysically, God is the cause of the universe. Not prior in time, but God is the cause in, in, in a logical sense. In a logical sense, God is the cause of the universe. Oh, fine, thank you. Very nice, thank you. So, yeah, yeah, one would think so. Yeah, good point, yeah. In other words, they had this concept of what was God. The same as after, and the creation is eternal. <laughs> it wasn't a creation. It was, always, it was always there. It wasn't a creation at a point in time. Therefore, it had to be. It's eternal. And God is the logical cause of the universe. It just flows out of, as God said, the universe is eternal, and it was always flowing. Always. There was no point where it began. It always was God's the cause. Logically, but not temporally. Hard point to grasp. Admittedly, hard point to grasp. So, <clears throat> therefore, the world is eternal. This position now is the world is eternal, and it was caused by God. The world is the result. Allah, He's the cause of it. Let me just read one more line. A candle. That's the next A candle is the cause of light, right? The candle is the cause of light. But yes, is not the light co-eternal or co-temporal with a candle? I light the candle. Light. The light goes down, goes on. So the, the candle is the same time. You can't have light. From this light to the candle, it's lit. I cannot light the candle not be lit. I live, it's lit. So as long as I have a candle lit, the light's going to emerge. Right? So the light is co-eternal with, so to speak, with the candle that I'm lighting. Now what's the cause of the, the flame? Right? What's the cause of the light? The, the, the flame. The cause of the light is the flame. So it's the cause of it but, we, but also coexist at the same time. We agree? With the analogy? This is a good analogy. It doesn't see the light. doesn't see the Same with God. The God is co-eternal. It's a bad word with the candle analogy. But God is a, comes at the same time, so to speak, eternally with the world, and yet God is the cause of it. The flame is the cause of the light. If the light is the same time as the flame. The world changes, therefore, no, you're no. arguing God changes. No, God is not the universe. It's beyond the universe. It's eternal with it. Two different things. This is making a case for eternal universe slash world. Universe, yeah. This world? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so creation 
you have to say then creation was no creation. Right, right. It was never and was only an outpouring of God's is of is God's God's natural right, creative God is therefore the universe. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And therefore because God's the cause of the universe. Not temporally, but logically. What part of that what cause the universe? God. How old is the universe? Eternal with God. That, that's a new position that he's taking over here. One more point. In the same way that the, the, the candle is the cause of the light. I have a shade. I have a shadow. What caused a shadow? The pillar. What caused the shadow? The pillar. But what happens if I don't have the pillar? I have no shadow. So what at the same time, but once I move my pillar, that's what will happen. I have a shadow. Right? Right? If I have light. As long as I have light, I have a shadow and I have a pillar. So they came about at the same time. They came about. The shadow comes up to the pillar. If I don't have a pillar, I have a shadow. So what time I have a pillar, I have my shadow. But what's the cause of the shadow? The pillar. Right? So the God is the cause of the world, of the universe, without being prior to it temporally in time. Right? One second. Okay? You see what you're talking about? We're on the same page? Yes? Okay. These three groups, which we'll review next week, they have no proof. They don't have absolute proof, they have relative proofs. Each proof is a relative, not an absolute proof. So his point over here is that because they're not absolute proofs, you have to believe them. Now, that's his opening statement over here. Okay, we'll continue next week. Thank you. Thank you. Hey.